Second scripture reading this morning comes from the Old Testament book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, the first five verses. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you that have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. See, you shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that do not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, who has glorified you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. My friend, Ted Smith, is brilliant. He teaches theology at Emory and he's leading a national study about the massive shift in the religious life of this country over the last 50 years. In May, I was in a seminar with Ted when he raised all the questions I've been asking for a while now. And I've been thinking about that ever since. Ted points out that for the first several hundred years in this country, churches were what he calls voluntary associations. Voluntary in that people were free to choose whether or not to be a part of them. Remember that many of the first immigrants to the colonies came seeking religious freedom. They resented the idea of a national church, in particular, the Church of England. So church as voluntary association meant that people could belong or not. It was their decision. But over the last half century, increasing numbers of people have chosen not to belong. Maybe you have seen the books and the articles that I've seen this summer, a New York Times editorial series and an article in The Atlantic just last week, Why Are So Many Americans Abandoning Church? Well, Ted attributes all of that to something he calls individualization. Not individualism, which suggests an ideology you might adopt. Individualization acknowledges all the forces that isolate us from one another. We spend our days communicating via tiny screens that we never leave behind. More and more of us work from home instead of in the communal environment of an office. We order meals from DoorDash and groceries from Amazon. We have long since exchanged front porches for back decks. And we are addicted to something we oddly call social media, which serves only to isolate us even further. Now look, I'm not suggesting that life would be better if we went back to the good old days. Here I am with a cell phone in my hand, an Apple Watch on my arm, preaching a sermon from an iPad that I wrote on my MacBook. I like technology as much as anyone. 
I have a front porch that I rarely use, and I love working from home. Still, it adds up. At the beginning of May, Vivek Murthy, who's the U.S. Surgeon General, released an 85-page advisory declaring loneliness and isolation a new public health epidemic. Even before COVID, he says, approximately half of U.S. adults reported measurable levels of loneliness. In the document, Dr. Murthy goes on to say, our relationships are a source of well-being hidden in plain sight. We must prioritize building social connection. To put that in Isaiah's terms, people are hungry and thirsty for relationships. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? We invest so much time and energy in things that ultimately cannot give us what we want. Like, still like Matthew's crowd that circumnavigates the entire Sea of Galilee to follow Jesus, we will go to any length to find something of substance. You give them something to eat, Jesus says. And that means us. What the church offers best, what all of us are hungry for, is relationship. Relationships let us bounce ideas off one another and test out what we're thinking and talk about what makes us sad or glad or confused. Genesis 1 says we are made in the image of God, creator, redeemer, sustainer divine relationship. We are hardwired for connection. Now that's not to say that golf leagues or alumni associations or neighborhood groups can't do the same, and they often do. But I don't know of any established institution or organization that's already better equipped to help people make connections than the church. All of which takes me to an Irish pub. <laughs> Some of you, maybe most of you, know that I spent two weeks of my sabbatical in Ireland, primarily on the northern and northwestern coasts. It was an amazing experience, and I would go back in a heartbeat. But given the study and the reading I've been doing about relationships and connection, I found myself paying particular attention to pubs. Now, you've heard that there's a pub on every corner in Ireland, and that is no exaggeration. But don't confuse an Irish pub for, say, a bar in the old city. Pub is short for public house, and that's exactly what it is, a place for the public to gather. Rachel reminded me yesterday that a pub functions like a coffee shop does in this country, or a barber shop, or a beauty salon in the black community. An Irish pub is a community gathering place, and you're just as likely to find a group of children playing tag in the courtyard as you are to find the old guard perched on stools at the bar. There might be a couple of teenagers playing pool, or a table of friends knitting, and best I can tell, everyone has one pub that they always go to. Now, they don't go for the reasons you might imagine. That's available, too, of course. 
But unlike the caricatures, the Irish don't go to a pub to get drunk. It wasn't unusual to see some members of that old guard nurse one pint for three or four hours. See, the whole point of a pub is the conversation. Crack, they call it. C-R-A-I-C, it's a Gaelic word. It can mean news or gossip or fun or entertainment, but it usually just means enjoyable conversation. What's the crack? How are you? What's happening? On the last days of our trip, we were in County Donegal in northern, northwest Ireland. We spent a day at Malinhead, which is the northernmost point on the mainland. There's an old military watchtower and a lighthouse, and as well as a hike to this spot. It's known as Hell's Hole, and although it's honestly one of the most stunning and beautiful places I've ever been, it opens up onto the North Atlantic, and while we had fantastic weather, I can imagine what a wild and woolly place it could be. But after a long hike, we were hungry and thirsty, and just a mile down the road in the village of Malin, population 92, we found Farren's Bar, the northernmost pub in Ireland. This is Hugh Farren, the owner. He is the sixth generation in his family to run this place. It started as a general store, and the taps and the restaurants have been added over time. We talked for a long, long time, and I asked him what he liked best about what he does, and he motioned to us and he said, this, the crack, the conversation. Hugh has three kids from toddler to teenager. What if they don't want to stay here and take over the family business, I said. What if they want to go to Dublin and work on a tech startup or something? Oh, my oldest will take it, he said. She has the gift, too. <laughs> when we stopped at Farns, we had no plans to spend the afternoon, but that's exactly what happened. A group of neighbors were seated at a booth near the entrance. As time went on, one or two might leave, and pretty soon others would take their place. The booth was still full when we left several hours later. We talked with Hugh and his staff and met some of the local patrons. This is Peter, who lived in Boston for 17 years and worked as an executive chef at seven different restaurants before he and his wife decided to return home to Malin. Peter's wife, Louisa, and their oldest daughter, Siobhan, both work at Farren's. Peter comes in every day, sits for hours, drinks one beer, and shares good crack with whoever might arrive. I hope I haven't turned this sermon into a travel log, but that afternoon was eye-opening for me, especially given the questions I was already asking about the church in this new culture. What if the church were more like an Irish pub? Now, please don't take that metaphor too far. We're not replacing coffee urns with Guinness taps in the atrium anytime soon. And listen, if you or people you love have been harmed by Guinness or its stronger cousins, remember that this is just a metaphor. But sitting in Farren's pub, I was struck by the relationships happening all around me. 
relationships between people who had lived in the same small village for their entire lives, and relationships between an expat chef and two American tourists, just because we were all willing to stay in the same place at the same time and engage in conversation. For as long as I can remember, the church has had this kind of unspoken rubric that we follow. It says, believing, belonging, behaving. That's the order in which we typically do things. First you believe, you make a profession of faith, and then you belong, you join the church, or you make a commitment to be a part of a faith community, and then you behave. You act according to the morals or the guidelines of your faith. But given my experience this summer, what if we reordered those? What if instead of believing first, we invite people to belong first? Belonging, believing, behaving. In other words, what if the church were first and foremost about loving people and inviting them to become a part of a community where they could find their own identity? to invest in relationships that help them and us define what matters and what doesn't and who we truly are. In Irish pub terms, pull up a stool and join the conversation. Come join us. What if belonging comes first? And given what I know about relationships, being part of a community invites people to act differently. So it would look something like belonging, behaving, believing. If I feel like I belong somewhere and if I have established relationships, I want to act according to the values of that community. And maybe then, because I belong, and because I have learned how the community behaves, and because I start acting like it, maybe then I live my way into believing. What if it were belonging, behaving, believing? What if the church, this church, could become a place where people were invited to come and be a part of a community and build relationships and friendships so that eventually they could live their way into believing? That's what's behind these supper clubs, not etiquette or great food, you may get that, but that's not the point. They're about relationships, making friends, connecting, belonging our way into believing. If you want to ask what I learned on my sabbatical, that's it. And you're probably going to keep hearing this from me. I want us to explore what it means to be a community of friendship and relationship that helps each of us discover who we are and what God desires for, from, for us. I've gone on way too long, but let me tell you one last story. A few weeks ago, I ran into Nancy and Jack McEntee in a local garden center. Nancy is a relatively new member of the church, and not long after she joined, she and Jack lost their home to a fire. After many months of trying to find a contractor, they are finally back in a home on their original property. The day I saw them, they were arranging for landscaping and buying plants. As Jack finished up the negotiations, Nancy turned to me 
to say how much New Providence has meant to her in this, in, and to both of them in this last year. She was overwhelmed by the love she has received from this congregation and couldn't say enough good things. And then she said, I always knew that God loved me, but now I've come to realize that God loves me through other people. And that, the preacher says, is what it means to be the church. Amen?